Good morning. This morning we will begin a study through the book of Genesis. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to make it all the way through two verses today. Maybe. It is ironic this morning that today's subject is about the beginning of all things. And I myself do not know where to begin. I don't know how to start this. It is the beginning of the creation of all things in the universe, and I find myself in a difficult time knowing how to start this. Because my esteem and awe and love for the book of Genesis has shaped me and defined who I am. Genesis, probably more than any other book, encourages me. And I'm not just saying that because I'm starting Genesis. It is precious to me. I've spent more time in Genesis than any other book that I've ever studied or known. I have it memorized, the first verse comes to me in Hebrew because I've looked at every preposition, every phrase. And it's not because, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to brag about myself or my study. I'm trying to tell you that I want to know what this book means. And, and I've dedicated a huge chunk of my life to understanding it. And I still grapple with it, especially the first, first chapter of Genesis. The ramifications of the first chapters of Genesis. This book, Genesis, is sacred. It defines us. It has shaped and defined our entire world. We're so used to it. We don't understand how radical this book is. It is the first book to teach us monotheism. It's the first book to teach us the truth about there is one God. And his name is... What is his name? He tells us what his name is in Genesis. This book teaches us about God and his dealings with us. Genesis tells us who we are, but it tells us why we are. And you can't find that anywhere else. The, the, the foundation for everything is laid for you in this book. Even about Jesus and the Messiah, all of that is here. The, the epic story of what we are, who we are, why we are, is in this book. And I feel... Inadequate to the task. I, I don't have time. I mean, I do. How long y'all want to be here? I don't have time to tell you all the, the riches that are in this book. I don't have time. And so one of, my, one of my goals here is some things I say, I hope they will challenge you. Because one thing that I want you to do is to think about this. I want you to think about the origin of all things and of yourself and what this book is actually teaching. Because we have taken it for granted. We need our... our preconceived ideas to be broken a little bit. We need our minds to be open that the light might shine because there's more going on in this text than you think. I tried to explain this the other day to... Actually, it was last night, and people who I was talking to will know I won't look at them. So if I'm not looking in that direction, you know they're over here somewhere. (laughs) You've heard this story before. George Washington, his father, finds his cherry tree dropped down, right? He comes to little George, and he says, George... Did you chop down my cherry tree? And what did George say? I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. Now, what is the point of that story? I'm, I'm, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think. Why, why do we tell that story? We tell that story because it is building the legend of George Washington as someone who tells the truth no matter if it hurts. He's an honest man. If you take that story and you say... There were no cherry trees in Virginia in 1750. 
You miss the point of the story. The point of the story is that Abraham Lincoln has his own stories. We're talking about George Washington. The point of the story is that George Washington is an honest guy. The point of the story is that he tells the truth to his own hurt. In Genesis, what we have here is true, epic stories that are real. But they are also larger than life. There is no other book like Genesis. We have other creation myths that exist where they have larger than life themes, but they're not true. But what we have here is a true, as C.S. Lewis would say, a true myth. Don't think false. But the actual founding of everything as it is is in this book, and it is recorded nowhere else. It is amazing what we have here. What it tells us gives us purpose. And what we have here, brothers and sisters, is that there is a God. And he's made everything that you see, and all that you are is because of him. So don't get, I'm not saying that all those other things aren't important. There's a thousand million conversations that are important about Genesis. There are a lot of important things that we can go over. But what Moses wants you to walk away from, most of all, is that Almighty God is creator of heaven and earth and everything in it. And he is sovereign over all life and everything that is. And before he created, there wasn't anything. It is no wonder then that the highest priority of the enemy is to use this book against us. Because if we doubt this book, we will doubt Where did your mind go? If you doubt this book, you will begin to doubt who you are. You will begin to doubt where you came from. And when you begin to doubt who you are, you'll begin to doubt whose you are. This is what this book is about. Whose are you? You're his. He has made you in all things. Why? Why did he do it? We won't learn that in these verses. But I will tell you that he did it for his own glory. You glorify him and show his magnificence. That's the point. There are a lot of other things we can talk about, but we need to walk off with that at least. The conflict between Genesis and science is not only unnecessary, it is a horror. God, as we will see, has actually written two books. He wrote this book to define us and to define creation, but he also wrote the world. His name is writ large in creation, and this is our playground. We should science it. We should figure it out. We should look at it. He made the laws orderly and good so we can figure stuff out, so we can have medicine, so we can do surgeries, so we can figure out if you throw a ball up in the air, it comes back down every single time. It's logical. It's perfect. But here's the trick. God doesn't have to follow those laws. He's like a hacker in a program. He can change it. You can throw a ball up in the air. He can throw a ball in the air, and it will stay there. After all, he knows how to do that. Our earth is doing that. (laughs) Don't let it freak you out. One of my favorite parts in the entire Bible is when God comes to Job and says, Hey, Job, what did I hang the earth on? And Job says very smartly, Lord, you know. He said, I hung it on nothing. And I know Job went, What? You hung it on nothing. We are floating in space at thousands of miles an hour and spinning and going around a blob of molten fire. It's wild out there. He can do that. He wrote this program. And he can override it anytime he wants. He doesn't do it often, but he does it sometimes. And when he does it, you can't science that. You just put up your tools. You can't science out of nothing something. You can't science Jesus is dead and he comes back to life. You can't science uh, Elisha is walking by the creek. God drops an axe head in there. He throws a stick in and the thing floats. 
It don't make no sense. It breaks the laws. So miracles are above science. And that's where a lot of the problem is. When you accept only a natural explanation of things, you're doomed from the start. Then you also have to reject your own spirituality and who you are, and you're just a mass of chemicals. So God has penned two books. One is sacred scripture, and the other is all of creation. One is our definition. One is a playground for us to explore the magnificence of God, and it is awesome. It is awesome. It's awesome in size, and it's awesome in small. It's, it's awesome everywhere you look, if you take it seriously. Inquire of each, and you will be wise. It never ceases to amaze me that people who know little of either science or Hebrew can be such experts on both things. So beware. Inquiry into both requires imagination, discipline, and hard work. And our work as Christians, as believers, is to move beyond Facebook apologetics into actual soul-stretching thought. Think about this book and what it means and what it means to everyone. We want to move into a beautiful world of discovery and wonder. And so what I say here may disappoint some of you or challenge you, but at others it will set you free. And either way, I mean to tell you that all that I can at the beginning of all things as written here, of all the possibilities, and I want to leave you with a sense of awe at all that God has made. Anything less is abysmal failure. It's so precious. It's so precious. So let's begin reading. In Genesis chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Here's how you got here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, the first words of God's word. The words written here in Hebrew, and I have to tell you this because it's very technical. This is almost like poetry. If you can't grasp the words underneath, you won't grasp what Moses is saying. I very rarely do this, like I said, but for this part, it's important. You have to trust me. The first word of the Bible in Hebrew is Bereshit. Bereshit. Bay is in, the preposition in, and then Rashid means beginning. There's more than one way to say beginning. We have this same way in English. You can say, I began to do something or I started to do something. And you can think in your mind, what is the difference between beginning and start? This word is not like start, but it's more akin to start, perhaps, than our word beginning. Because when you say start, you automatically think there is a stop. The word here for Hebrew, when he says, in the beginning, it means that there is a series, a sequence of events that are coming to an end. From the first word, God is telling us, it is not always going to be like this. I'm telling you a story that's ending. So from the first word, you're supposed to be excited about what the ending is. This grand epic of everything in creation and all stuff called life, when you're reading this, by the banks of the Jordan in 2000 B.C., after you've gone into the conquest of the promised land and you read it, what's the end of the story, Lord? Why did you do this? The point of the first word is to say there is a point. There is a reason and there is an end. In the beginning, God created 
So the word translated here, Rashit, means beginning. And it, the, the, the opposite end of this is Rashit is Akarit, the end. The Rashit and Akarit. And he uses this, God uses it through the prophets. In Isaiah 46.10, he says this. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. When he says here in Isaiah 46.10, I make known the Akarit from the Bereshit. I make known the end from the beginning. I am telling a story. And what is his point, he says in Isaiah 46.10? My purpose will stand and I will do what I please. This is my story. Your character is in my story, the Lord is saying to us. There is an ending, and we should look for it. There is a purpose. There is a sequence of events that is about to take place that intimately involves you and all of creation, why God has made it, and this book is going to begin to explain it for us. So, if you want to know why you are here, this book promises from the first word to answer it. From the very first word, we know that this world must end. This story will one day be over. And a new story will come. This is why the prophet said, Behold, I will make all things new. will be a new heaven and a new earth and another story. The end is from the beginning. So God made in the beginning everything that is. So in the beginning, when it started, there's going to be an end. And the second thing that Moses wants you to know is that God created. So you take this. It, this, is, this is old hat to us. But you need to understand how this shattered the world. This story. Take it as a pagan who believes in a thousand thousand gods. None of who care about you one bit. Or even acknowledge your existence. This declaration that it is Elohim, God, who has created. Singular. Has hit the ear of a million pagans who lived in fear of false gods. And people believed then. that Some people believed that this world came into existence because of a great... Black bird named Nix laid a golden egg that hatched in half, and the top half became the sky, and the bottom half became the land. And the earth and the sky had children, and titans were made, and then Zeus had a big fight with them, and they whipped the titans and got rid of them. And all that fighting and fussing caused the world. There were gods popping out of people's heads. Uh, some creation myths, gods got stabbed and blood hit the ground, and people popped up out of that. In Babylonian mythology, Apsu and Tiamat are the primeval gods, and they, the other gods come along and ignore, annoy them because they make a bunch of racket. This is from uh, Gilgamesh. And so they had a war in the midst of this chaos, and finally Marduk rises up and battles with Tiamat and rips Tiamat in half. Brutal fatality. Marduk rises up to do battle with Tiamat, rips him in half, and from these two halves are born heaven and earth. So others believe the earth itself were gods and they worshiped trees and lizards and creeping things and projections of gods and that God was nature. All of these things were worshipped. But it was always chaos. It was always fighting. It was always nature red, tooth in tooth and claw, or it is the gods battling it out for their own primacy, giving little attention to the people here on earth. But the God who creates here has no fight. In contrast to the gods that surrounded them of Babylon, gods that surrounded them from Assyria and other places, this God, when he creates, has no opposition. There is no other God here. There's no Tiamat, there's no Apsu, there's no Marduk. There is only God. And when he wants to create, he doesn't have to rip 
uh, people in half or hatch eggs, he speaks. And worlds come to life. This changes the earth. Here, God creates out of nothing. And we'll talk about what it means to be formless and void, but when the Hebrew says that God's created the heavens and the earth, it means that he created everything in totality. If you're reading this as a Hebrew, it says here that he created the Hashemayim and the Vayet Haaretz, which is the sky and the land. That's what it means in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created sky and land. We have words for this. This is called a merism. I know you should be taking notes today. It's an amazing lecture sermon preaching I'm doing. Whenever you said I went back and forth, what does that mean? It means you just walked around. I went all over the place. Does that mean you literally went everywhere? It means I went, I was looking everywhere. I was hither and yon. We don't say that much anymore. People used to say that. When it says sky and land or heaven and earth, it means that God created everything that is. Period. There's nothing else other than what God made. Then he's going to concentrate on the land so he can create it for us, a place where we can live. So God creates everything in totality in verse 1. At least he's taking credit for everything in verse 1. Every single thing that is is made in verse 1. And he creates it from nothing. That's important. It may not seem important to you, but it is because God created out of something. God is not creation. He is separate from it. He is other. We are not God. Nothing you see is God. Everything you see is of his imagination. But he is not it. He's not in the desk. He's not in my mic. He's not, he does live in my heart, as we say. But I'm not God. He is separate from creation. There was nothing physical, period, until God made it. He's not part of the creation in the sense that he is with it. We are not pantheists. We are monotheists and God is separate from his creation. And creation, matter, is not eternal. God birthed it from nothing. So out of nothing he creates everything. He did not quarrel with other gods because he alone is sovereign. And he creates for his own purposes. His mysterious ones at that. He created. We don't even learn here in this passage when God did this. We don't learn when he did it. We just learned that he did it. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about the days of creation and how Moses has written about that. But right here, all we have is that God went whoosh, somehow. I don't know how long it took him. Let's get a little technical here. We don't even know what how long it took him means, but because before he made matter, there may not have even been time because there wasn't stuff. Don't hurt yourself. But he was making stuff, and you say, how long did it take? It's like, I don't know. How are we measuring time? What even is time? Go home today and think about that. So when he's making this stuff, we don't know how long it took, but because before he made it, there was nothing. You can't time something that don't exist. So at some point in the Bereshit, in the beginning, God makes everything. And he's responsible for it. And he's teaching us that he's the sovereign God of all the universe and everything that's here. I don't know. What, when you're not even beginning with material things, a lot of stuff goes right out the window. But, and those notions aren't really the concern of Moses here. His purpose is to say that God created everything and that he's the king of everything and that he owns it because he made it. 
We're in the realm of the miraculous. The word here for created, there's more than one word for created in Genesis. Barat is what's used here. It's only connected ever with God. Nobody else baras but God. And when he does that, it means he's making something new. In fact, what's interesting, when he makes man, he baras him. But when he makes woman, he asafs her. She was made. And the reason is because he didn't do something new with woman. He made man an equal partner. These words are important. You can't always see them in English. And really, this is the only place I know in the Bible that it is so important to see these things. So much arguing, so much fussing is going on with people who have absolutely no idea what they're really talking about. So here is God, Barang, making everything out of nothing. I don't know if he said presto or what. I know he said let there be light. But I don't know when he was making everything how that went. And by presto I just mean I don't know if he like pulled the rabbit out of the hat. If he had been like programming in God language, however he does it. And he like flipped the switch and everything came on. I don't know. But he made it. God did it. And he did something new. And so then it says that when he makes the heavens and the earth, the next thing he goes to is the earth. And it's sort of unfortunate, again, English, earth, this word, everywhere else is called aretz, land. And the reason that that's important is because if you're a Hebrew to your ear, what that would hearken to is the promised aretz. The entire focal point of Genesis is what? Not Genesis only. But the rest of the Pentateuch is the children of Israel getting back to the what? The Aretz. They're going back to the land. And so when you were reading this, you would hear it. It would say, in the beginning, God created the Hashemayim and the Aretz. And the Aretz was, out, was without form and was void. Are we talking about the promised land? We're definitely hearkening to it. A place made especially for God's people to dwell in. The land of plenty and promise and perfection. This is the original promised land. And the Israel that we know today, the land, is a microcosm of what we lost. This is what you would hear if you were Hebrew. God prepared the Aretz for man to live in. And the Aretz, the land, the earth, is translated here, which is a good translation, but it tends to make you think global stuff. But what I'm trying to get you into is the narrative. The land was without form and void. And this is also kind of unfortunate. When it says form and void, you might think in your mind that it's a blob of mass of, like, jelly or something. Formless and void means uninhabitable by life. It's simply what this means. You can't live here right now. It is formless and void. So it says it's formless and void. It means that the place is unfit for human habitation. And in Jeremiah the prophet, now remember Jeremiah the prophet, people went into exile in Babylon. He has a view of the promised land. And here's what he says. I looked on the Aretz. I looked on the land. Some verses will translate this earth, but he's clearly talking about the promised land. I looked on the Aretz, the land, and behold, it was without form and void. Same exact words in Genesis 1. It was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. He's talking about the promised land. 
I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking in the hills, and they moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, and there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. And I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. What Jeremiah is saying is the promised land, and he's using the language of Genesis 1 to say when we are exiled and taken from the land, it is once again tovu bohu. It is formless and void. The point of Genesis 1 is this place was made for us. This is what God is doing in Genesis 1. He's preparing the place for us to live. And that makes sense when it says here, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So here we have this wasteland. It's like a swamp. There's land there, but it's uninhabitable. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And when it says here, hovering, do not think Casper the friendly ghost. He's not, he is the Holy Spirit, he's the Holy Ghost, but he's not hovering like Casper. It means brooding. Hovering like an eagle will hover over its chicks to keep them safe. Hovering like a Chicken hovers over chicks to keep them safe from predators. When it says that the Holy Spirit of God hovered over the waters, it means he was taking care of it. He was getting ready to prepare it. For what? For you, for us to live in. The point of this design is that we might live in it. So when God begins to create in the beginning, he's preparing a place, a land of promise for his people where there will be no sorrow, there's no uh, problems, as we see in the first, every single tree there is good to eat from. He puts the man in the middle, and he doesn't call it just a place. He calls it a little garden spot. God puts them in garden. That's what Eden means, garden. We call it the Garden of Eden for a reason. It's a garden spot where they're supposed to live without thorns, without thistles, without pain, without sin. This is what God is preparing in Genesis 1. It is a glorious and beautiful thing. God has decided to create and he's going to reveal himself through everything he's created. He's going to put people in this garden who look like him. He's going to make them in his image so he can forever display his splendors to them and forever make them happy in himself. That's the point. And when in his fierce wrath he exiles the children of Israel from the promised land, it is formless and void. The sun doesn't shine. There are no birds. It's a dead place. This is why in Psalms it says, When we went into captivity, we hung our harps on the tree. For how can we sing songs of Zion in a foreign land? They lost their song. They lost their joy. They lost their place. And if you lose Genesis 1, you will lose your song. And you will lose your place. You will forget whose you are. And why you were made. And what you were made for. And who you should reflect and glorify. And the great deep joy for which we were made. It is epic. In every sense of the word. The Holy Spirit hovered over the inhospitable darkness. And even now hovers near us. And this is why this is why Genesis is so important. In Corinthians, when he says, And the Spirit said, Let there be light, and we saw the face of Jesus. Our hearts are tofu vebohu. Thou hearts are formless and void and desolate. 
until God speaks light into our lives through the same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters of darkness. And he's here today. He made this place. And he made you. And the point of all this making is that he might fellowship with you and you with him forever and ever. And he is going to remake the promised land. Where we will live in joy with no sin and no pain again. There is an end to this story. But there is also another beginning. I look forward in the days to come to speak to you about creation. About Jesus the Savior who is present here as Robert read in John chapter 1. That the worlds were made through the word who is God and was God. And for him and through him and by him were all things made. I look forward to telling you the great news. That your purpose in life is to be the crown jewel of everything God made. You are going to shine like the sons and daughters of God. That all of this place has been prepared for our habitation that we might bring glory to the creator who made it all. Now some of us today have not yet heard in our hearts, let there be light. The Lord is still bringing light into the darkness. It's my hope through this that you will begin to see that there is more out there than the physical. There is a spiritual world that we've barely touched and seen. That gives us purpose in life. And that we have fallen so far from the original creation in the garden. But that there is a way back. There is a tree of life. And his name is Jesus. And you may have of that fruit at any time you want. And you will live and not die. So today if you do not know Christ. And you know by the power of the spirit. That you are living in darkness. You might be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. And he will save you. And there will be light in your wasteland. And you will have purpose in your heart. You can create this out of nothing. And you will bring glory to him forever. And you will have joy Beyond your wildest dreams. The creation is an indication of the creative mind of God. There are billions of galaxies out there with billions of stars. And there's lots and lots of space in between. God has created a mighty big universe out there. Because he is a mighty big God. And we have literally no idea what he's going to do with all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I know this, one day heaven is going to descend to earth as we know it and we are going to be playing in this playground forever and it will be to our endless delight. So come to Jesus and live and understand the wonder of creation and your creation as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you will help us Help us to recapture the beauty of creation, of our soul, of our spirit. So often, Lord, with our analytical minds and our brains, we try to figure out how old the world is, how everything was made, and we draw our hard lines in the sand about age of the earth and what Genesis says, and those are things we're talking about, Lord, but what we need to focus on is your purpose, your plan for us, that we are special, made in the image of God, and that we are brought here to glorify you.